Hello and welcome once again to Just Plain Sense. years ago in March 2009, I recorded a podcast interview with my own father. I'm glad I did that because just 10 months later, he passed away. Our recorded discussion about his life is something I cherish as the only record of us talking together. During the interview, I got my dad to talk a little about his experience as an airman during the war. Naturally, I knew more than the average interviewer about my subject as I'd grown up listening to both parents sharing their wartime experiences over the dining table. Their favourite time was after Sunday lunch and on occasions Les would talk about the year crash he'd been in and had been lucky enough to survive. Some of the surrounding details had usually been missed though as he never started at the beginning for my mum who'd heard it all before. I was left with an incomplete picture of how the crash occurred and how it might have affected him. My mum died in 2008, so after Les died 18 months later, I was left with the task of sorting through all the papers. I found his flight sergeant's logbook, photos of his comrades, even the reference from his commanding officer when he was demobbed. What I hadn't expected to find was the carefully typed manuscript of a short story based on the night of that crash set down by him 30 years ago, when he tried his hand at writing. Always write about what you know, they say, and my father had obviously taken that advice to heart. Although the story is credited to himself by name, Leslie Burns, he'd evidently decided to distance himself from the action by creating a fictitious character, Flight Sergeant Martin Dawes. Perhaps when you've heard the story, the reasons for keeping that distance might be easier to understand. The Sunderland by Leslie Burns The pinnace slowly cruised in Mombasa Harbour, heading towards one of the Sunderland flying boats, bobbing up and down on the swell, about half a mile from the shore. It was evening on a day in April 1945, and a storm was brewing. Black clouds with thunder and lightning could be heard and seen out at sea. The crew were seated in the boat, dressed in khaki shirts and shorts, and none of them looked very happy. There were eleven men on this occasion, although a Sunderland normally carried a crew of eight. The three extra men were from another crew, and were there to learn and practice operating new equipment that had recently been installed. Flight Sergeant John Clark, who was over six feet tall, had close-cropped red hair and was clean-shaven. He spoke with a cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth. Don't look so good, does it? Going out on exercise in this sort of weather. Still, they might cancel it yet. Sitting opposite him, Flight Sergeant Martin Dawes said nothing and just nodded. Martin looked towards the other end of the boat, where the skipper, Flight Lieutenant John Gilmore, was talking to the navigation officer. 
Pilot Officer Jim Wright, and the second pilot, Pilot Officer Roy Gillespie. Sitting near to them was the second pilot from another crew, Pilot Officer Steve Joplin and the Flight Engineer, Flight Sergeant Alan Sprigmore. Alan had shaved his moustache off that morning with great reluctance. It had suited him, but his girlfriend had written to him expressing her dislike of it when she'd seen the snapshot that he'd sent to her, and Martin thought he didn't look so handsome now. It was getting dark as they drew up alongside the Sunderland. The wind was getting stronger, and it had just started to rain. They took off, flying out to sea. Martin and Steve stood on the flight deck, just behind the skipper, who was at the controls. They were awaiting their turn to practice operating the new radar equipment. It soon became apparent that they would have to turn back and abandon the exercise because the weather was getting worse. John Gilmore received a message on the radio which said simply, Abort exercise and return to base. Visibility was poor and the aircraft flew low over the harbour and suddenly the pilots saw the floating flare path lights. Martin could see that it would be impossible to land because, due to the high wind and heavy swell, the floating lamps had moved into a zigzag shape. Over the radio from the operations room came the order, fly out to sea until the storm abates. After a while, Martin felt very disturbed and uneasy. The aircraft kept plunging and rising like a ship at sea, which only occurs when flying over land. All the members of the crew were either sitting at their stations, getting on with their jobs, or, like Martin, standing and waiting. Martin was waiting to start his duty turn on the radio communications equipment. At present, John Clark was doing that job. John didn't look worried as he sent back a reply to base, tapping on the Morse key, and neither did any of the others. Or if they did, they didn't show it. Due to the loud noise from the engines, it made conversation between the crew impossible. It was only possible on the intercom, and because Martin was not on duty position, he couldn't plug into it. The Sunderland was not flying out to sea, as the pilots thought, but flying inland. The magnetic compass was showing them a false bearing, and they were flying towards high ground at a speed in excess of 200 knots. After a short while, the Sunderland flew into the top branches of a forest of tall trees and burst into flames. The wings, floats and engines were torn off. They disintegrated and the bits were flung over a wide area. The burning fuselage carried on, ploughing through the branches until it landed in a field. The impact broke it in two. The rear part with the tailplane flew off and landed about 50 yards away in a diagonal position with the tail uppermost. The front part, with its petrol tank, burnt slowly. The tank was self-sealing, and it had a thick skin of rubber over its whole surface. This would prevent leakage from possible bullet holes, and now this served the purpose of only allowing a slow flow of petrol from the fractured tank. The crew didn't have much time to think. First they heard a loud bang, and in the next second everything disintegrated and they were thrown about with the debris. Then there was fire, and then loud screams were heard. Martin heard them before he blacked out. When he came to, he was hanging upside down, with his feet trapped in the wreckage above him. But he felt no pain. He felt happy and quite prepared to stay there forever. John Clark heard the screams and then blacked out. 
He found himself lying in the wreckage with flames quite near to him, and the heat was getting intense. His first thoughts were, the flying boat has blown up in flight, and so he scrambled over the debris to get out through a rectangular opening in the side of the fuselage. When he got there, he shouted, My poor wife! Oh, my poor wife! He jumped, and to his amazement, landed on the burning petrol tank. He quickly jumped from there to the ground. The sound of John's voice and seeing him jump through the opening spurred Martin into action. With a lot of struggling, he managed to free his left foot. He only had a very short amount of time now to get out. The flames were getting stronger and the fire was spreading towards him. He jerked his right leg backwards and forwards until at last his foot came free. He crawled on top of unstable debris towards the opening. There were gaps in it through which he could see a compartment below and someone moving about. At last he reached the opening and stepped down outside onto the burning petrol tank and very quickly jumped six foot down to the ground. To his great surprise and joy, there were six survivors standing around. He shouted to them, We'll have to try and get the others out. At that moment, the skipper, with his clothes on fire, dashed out of the rear part of the wreckage, shouting, Help me! Hans immediately grabbed him and rolled him on the wet grass, quickly extinguishing the flames. By now, the fuselage was a mass of flames, and Martin said, Let's get over to the other side of the field in case the tank blows up. As he spoke, he looked up and could see where the aircraft had ploughed through the tops of the trees. The top branches were ablaze, as far as the eye could see, and the flames cast an eerie light over the small field, which was littered with debris. As they walked across the field... Two of the air gunners, Sergeant Pat Smith and Sergeant Ron Turner, carried the skipper. Ron shouted, Look, there's the first aid box. Someone pick it up. After walking for a while, they stopped and laid the skipper, John Gilmore, on the ground. Oh, I'm sure my back's broken, he said. Come on now, sit up, John. John Clark spoke as he stood over him. Slowly, the skipper, with great effort, sat up, being very much aware of his badly bruised and burnt back. Martin looked into the first aid box and picked up a hypodermic syringe with morphine dispenser attached to it, which he injected into the skipper's arm. Your back isn't broken, you'll be all right, he said. After a short while, the skipper started laughing and then sang loudly, Roll out the barrel! It started raining heavily and Pat said, Let's go back and shelter under the tall part of the fuselage. Good idea, said Martin. But, as they walked back, he found he could no longer walk on his right foot. He thought to himself, I must have damaged it when I wrenched it free from the wreckage. He shouted to the others, who were in front of him, and Pat and Ron came back and helped him. The eight survivors settled themselves down under the shelter and looked at the fiercely burning remains of the fuselage, which were only fifty yards away. Martin found a package of cigarettes in his pocket and handed them round. They all took one, lit up, and then recounted the horrifying events that had occurred. Look, said Pat. They all looked towards the blazing fuselage, and there in the flames were three shapeless black figures. The apparitions were standing side by side and sharply defined in the bright flames. Moving as though they were dancing, they were real. Eight pairs of eyes watched them, and the eight men thought of the three men who had died. Roy Gillespie, Steve Joplin and Alan Sprigmore, who had shaved his moustache off. As they watched, 
the black figures moved to the front of the fire, and after a short while suddenly disappeared. To where? The night dragged on, and they lay there, huddled together, unable to sleep. But at last daylight came. There were no clouds, and the sun shone on all that had happened during the night. The fire had burnt itself out, and there were propeller blades and other bits of metal strewn everywhere. Not far from the tail section under which the survivors lay was the rear gun turret. It must have hit the ground with great impact. It lay there, looking like a smashed egg, with the perspex shield shattered. Martin could see it from where he lay, and he thought, if anybody had been inside that gun turret, they would most certainly have been killed. Pat and Ron, unlike the others, who had suffered burns, severe bruising and abrasions, were completely unscathed. They stood talking to a local tribesman who had just appeared, and was naked except for a dirty piece of cloth around his loins. He spoke in Swahili and pointed in a direction. They could all understand a few words in Swahili, and after some time they managed to discern that he knew where the district commissioner's bungalow was, and if they followed him, he would show them that it was not far away. They set off, and a few hours later the rescue party arrived with stretchers. They took the eight survivors to an ambulance which was waiting on a dirt road about half a mile away. The journey ended at the military hospital in Mombasa. Reading from the Sunderland, written by my father, Leslie Burns, Martin in the story. And that, as usual, brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. I hope you've enjoyed this unusual departure from the usual format. If you'd like to hear more, then the place to go is our website, podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. And join us again soon for another programme, usually on a topic relating to equality and diversity. For now, though, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Music